The New Testament reading is from Acts 8. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Well, for everyone who is here last week and saw our trend-breaking bulletin of multiple, multiple pages, um, I don't know if you felt reassured when you opened up today's bulletin and you were like, oh, it's like normal size. Um, I, you know, I was tempted to add a whole bunch more in. You know, it's like we cracked open the door. It was like, give Cindy Parker permission to insert a lot more scripture into the bulletin. Uh, but I resisted. However, we are going to do um, what we've been doing, which is following themes that are in the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, and the Book of Acts, Volume 2. And so although we're hanging out in Volume 2, we kind of have to see how there's a consistent trend. And Luke has been showing us there's like a whole flow of a conversation that's been going on in his writings. And so Part of the power and the punch that um, shows up in this passage is because it's connected to everything else that is around it. So I'm going to start by reading from the beginning of Acts chapter 8. So I know you don't have this printed in front of you, although if you have a Bible on your phone, pull it out, or a physical Bible, which props to you. Um, I wanted to connect this to our story last week. So last week we were introduced to Stephen and we saw this Hellenized Jew who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we saw the leadership that he was given, but then just the words with which he spoke, the wisdom that he had as he spoke within his community and the deeds and the signs and wonders that he did all through the power of the Holy Spirit, which of course leads to, ultimately leads to his death. Um, by the end of chapter 7. So I want to pick it up there, uh, just because it is connected thematically to what we're going to talk about. And so Acts chapter 8 starts this way. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that would be Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is a really interesting little phrase there, because if you'll remember, we are also tracing, or the table of contents for the book of Acts, is the movement, the pouring out of Jesus' spirit onto the church, and that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But last week, we talked about how everything has still been just very Jerusalem-focused. It's with the death of Stephen that the rest of the church gets pushed outwards. And so we get this, they are moving into the hill country of Judea and Samaria. They are following what Jesus told them to do, except the apostles. The apostles, the original disciples of Jesus are still in Jerusalem. There's something that is keeping them there. And I find this to be a super interesting trend to start to watch and follow because we're watching Luke explain that their early church is not something to just idolize. They had their issues and concerns, their faults and foils and their victories. And so we're, we're seeing that at the beginning of 8. So in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, Philip was introduced to us earlier in chapter 6. He was one of the seven Hellenized Jews that was pulled into this leadership position in the early church. 
Um, and so now we followed Stephen, and now we're going to follow Philip for a bit. And the crowds in Samaria pay attention to what he's saying. And it's only after the areas, these cities in Samaria, start responding to the message that Philip is giving them, do the apostles catch on? Oh, maybe we should, maybe we should go too. And then Peter and John, like a little behind the trend, not, not early adopters, right? They run and catch up and they head out to Samaria. And now, and only now, in this part of the story, the Holy Spirit shows up and is like, all right, Philip, I've got another job for you. And this is where we're going to pick up Philip in our passage. So the angel of the Lord, and actually I'll say before I start reading this again, I'll say there's been this interesting, because we've been looking at this early church, and the early church has been a Jewish church and a temple-going Jewish church. That's what we've seen in all of the early chapters of the book of Acts. And then we have this Philip going and some of the other Jewish Christians going to places like Samaria to the other. Like in the Samaritans, there's a bit of a shared history with the Jews, so they're not dramatically other, but they're other with a lot of cultural differences behind them and a lot of shared animosity between them. And yet, we get in this early chapter, in the early part of chapter 8, we see that the Jews and the Samaritans both get to come into this early Christian community without distinction. It is a one-body by one spirit type of a unity. And so as the Holy Spirit is now going to move Philip out of the hill country and down to the coastal plain where the international roads are, we're going to have a whole different kind of other that we're going to meet. In fact, this person, the Ethiopian eunuch, is othered for us in two different ways. He's an Ethiopian and he's a eunuch. So before we really get into that, let's look at other aspects of his character, his status, like who is this guy? So in your bulletin, if we're reading and we get to verse 27, so one verse in, it says, so he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Kandake, which is a title for the queen mother of the Ethiopians, um, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And in this short description, we go, okay, so this is a person of great status. Basically, he serves the queen. So that is something that is somewhat impressive. He's in a chariot, so there's an awful lot of wealth that is involved. It's not a warrior chariot. It's a transportation chariot. But just the fact that he's not walking is astounding. So there's a wealth and a status and a posture that's involved. He also has the scroll of Isaiah. That's even more astounding, I would say, because in this time, entire synagogues that serve like an entire community would pool their resources in order to buy a scroll for the synagogue. And the fact that he has his own scroll, and it's Isaiah, which is kind of a big scroll, so he has his own really significant scroll. He's reading out loud, which means that he's educated, right? It's, 
And he's been in Jerusalem, not a throwaway fact either. He's been in Jerusalem for the festivals that have just taken place, which means he's Jewish. Now, there's a few that might sound surprising. Ethiopian Jewish, that's not the normal version of the Jewish story that we tell. But there was a big, thriving community of Jews in Egypt, Ethiopia, the area we would call modern-day Sudan. Um, some people would trace it back to the Queen of Sheba from the Book of Kings. Others would say when the Babylonian Empire came and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, there were a bunch of Jews that didn't go into exile in Babylon. They fled and went south and established a community. And it is a big, thriving, and amazing community that remained relevant for a very, very long time. So he's probably one of those. He is evidence of those. He is an Ethiopian Jew who has been in Jerusalem and he's been celebrating. Now we should talk about his otherness. So the way that Luke is pointing out the differences of this guy, right? So first we get the Ethiopian, although, and here I'll say this, Ethiopian, it's not the same as modern-day Ethiopia. Uh, the Ethiopians that are being referred to here come out of the kingdom of Cush, which was the kingdom of Nubia. Um, Ethiopia, being called Ethiopia at this time, is the southern part of modern-day Egypt, the northern part of modern-day Sudan. So not quite as far south as modern-day Ethiopia, but right along the Nile River, a very historic and important country. This gentleman is serving as one of the top officials to the queen mother, the one who is the one who gives birth to the next regent. She played a very public role in the, um, the I don't know, ruling, I guess, of Ethiopia, so a very public figure, and he was one of the top officials. Now, he's also a eunuch, which, because we already know his title, serving the queen mother, we shouldn't be very surprised. Eunuchs were often top-serving officials, but we could also say it the other way around. Top-serving officials were often made to be eunuchs. They were less dangerous to have in the queen mother's household or to be around the women um, for maybe obvious reasons. Now, we should talk about that idea of being a eunuch, though, because eunuchs are often overlooked in our scripture, and yet they're in several different places in scripture. Um, Jesus himself talks about eunuchs and says there are eunuchs who were born that way. And, you know, we could talk about how the biblical text talks about people who are sexually just different. In modern day terms, we would probably call a person like this an intersex person, something where the, the sexuality of them seems a little bit uh, not quite so clearly defined. So eunuchs are born that way. Some of them are made that way. And usually if you're taken captive, but you're a highly intelligent person who can read and write, when you're taken captive, you're put into the role of the governors of the kingdom who takes you captive and then turned into a eunuch. So sometimes we think of Nehemiah, maybe even Daniel, um, maybe were turned into eunuchs, so forced to be a eunuch. And then some people choose to be a eunuch. 
So born that way, forced to be that way, choose to be that way. But what we do know for sure is people with these sexually different formulas that don't quite fit into boxes were people that through the Hebrew Bible, through Israelite text, tended to be ostracized from the community. So we get writings in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that is talking about who gets to be a part of the community, not the sexually different people. So the eunuchs are pushed off to the side. And yet, when we follow the story of scripture, we get writings like Isaiah 56. And we did a responsive reading out of Isaiah 56, which is a bit of a compilation from Isaiah 56. So I'm actually going to read Isaiah 56 because it's quite powerful. And I would say it's actually really interesting because earlier in Isaiah, um, as Isaiah is painting a picture of what does God's kingdom look like? Like, what does it look like when there is restoration of God's people and God's people are living with God in unity? This picture of restoration is shown by these people typically ostracized or on the, the um, borders of a community get pulled back in. And so Isaiah says, for women who don't have children, who are barren, oh, don't worry. Restoration, you know what it looks like when you're included in the kingdom of God and not ostracized? You're going to have to enlarge your tent because your descendants will be many. And Isaiah 56 is tracing foreigners, foreigners who are, tend to be ostracized from the community, and then eunuchs. So I'm going to read. Um, let me see if I can find my place real quick. So because Isaiah, when he's casting vision, ah, here, it's earlier in the chapter. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, right? So Isaiah is going, don't Say this about yourself because you know what restoration looks like. And he goes on and he says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose to please me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of son and daughter. Can you imagine being told this? Like this is part of the picture that is being painted. When is the kingdom of God instituted and what does it look like? Foreigners get to come in. Eunuchs are elevated to the point where their name is better than son and daughter. Like so incredibly beautiful. This picture of God's kingdom kind of reaching out and going, actually, I can pull you in as well. Now, we don't know for sure in the first century how eunuchs were treated in Jerusalem during the festivals. So, so we don't have very many written records about that, but we just know trend is from history that there's a status that is associated with being a eunuch. And so who knows what this guy has just been experiencing in Jerusalem, and then Philip is going to catch up. And so as we're watching this push of the Holy Spirit outwards and kind of in uncomfortable ways, because the Holy Spirit is pushing this early Jewish church to not stop at the boundaries they normally stop at in who gets to be included and who not, but kind of keeps 
pushing them just a little bit beyond that. And so how does that happen under the direction of the Holy Spirit? Well, this Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot, all high status of him and wealthy, is reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he reads this portion. This is Isaiah 53, as we would call it today. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shears, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And if you're a good Christian who's grown up in church, you're like, duh, obviously, Isaiah is talking about Jesus, right? Which is, no, I would, I would argue, that is not true. I mean, maybe, ultimately, we can theologize theologize that to be true. But that is not instinctually what anyone would say, not at this time. So the Jewish tradition, the Jewish scriptures and writings have very well-developed themes. One is of a victorious Messiah. Lots of different scriptures fit into that. Who is God going to use in order to bring about restoration and initiate God's kingdom on earth? victorious Messiah. And yet the Israelites and the Jews also had a very well-established tradition of the suffering servant, except they usually read that as themselves. They were the ones who suffered somewhat for their own sin, but there is a suffering that leads to redemption, which leads to ushering in of God's kingdom. It is Jesus who takes these two very well-formed Israelite themes and puts them together. It says, actually, the victory of the Messiah comes about through the suffering of the Messiah. And how does that work? Well, that's another theme that Luke has been working on. He talks about it all through the Gospel of Luke, where we've been watching Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, bringing about his kingdom. And what does it look like? It's amazing, because when we do this within the context of the Roman Empire, where empire kingdom is the most visible form of human kingdom, where empire or kingdom building means someone gets to the top and everyone serves them and a strong empire is exemplified in economic wealth and social influence and the ability to go out and conquer people and force those people to be like you that kind of influence that is Roman Empire. And in the face of all of that, very consistently, Jesus ushering in God's kingdom is so much more humble. And he says, it's not the economics. It's not the social standing. It is the one who serves, even to the point of death, pointing to the suffering servant. And in that comes extraordinary victory that can challenge even death and that builds God's kingdom. But that's kind of a, that's a new thing, and it's a challenging thing. And as this early Jewish church is trying to grow and build inside of this gigantic Roman empire, they're having to learn that the kingdom doesn't look like Rome. The kingdom looks like what Jesus exemplified for them. I wish I had the conversation that Philip had with the eunuch 
it would have been so lovely to hear him explain how Jesus is flipping the idea of kingdom on its head. But then we get later on. So I think this is verse 37, 36 or 37. The eunuch then says, after this conversation, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And I don't think that's a throwaway question. Like we kind of read it like, oh, what's to prevent me? Let's hop off the chariot and get down into the water. I don't think it's that kind of casual question because the person asking it is a person who's probably heard a long list of things that would prevent you from getting in the water. And yet after hearing about the suffering servant type of kingdom building that Jesus' followers are in the middle of, it's like, so for me, Ethiopian Jewish eunuch serving in a position of power. What is going to prevent me from getting in the water? And I love that like there's no, Philip doesn't respond, but it's like nothing, nothing. You know why? Because God's kingdom is big enough to reach out and include you too, and you get to come in. I also don't think the very end, the very last portion included in our passage is a throwaway verse either. Um, And I say that as the geography geek among us. Uh, We do tend to look at these and then Philip goes from here to here. Like, woohoo. Except it is important because now we have Philip who's down on the international coastal highway that's running right along the Mediterranean Sea. And when he leaves the Ethiopian eunuch, he goes north. Azotus is ancient Ashdod. So he goes to Ashdod and he makes his way all the way up to Caesarea. That is not a throwaway detail because Caesarea was a purely Hellenized city. Caesarea doesn't sit on any land with any Israelite or Jewish story underneath it. When it was built, it was built in virgin territory to be whatever Herod the Great wanted it to be, which was 100% Hellenized. And Philip goes there. There's so much to admire about Philip. And in fact, later on, Luke is going to introduce us to Philip again. Paul, the great missionary who's been out throughout the Roman kingdom, comes into Caesarea Maritime and stays with Philip. And there Luke says, Philip, one of the, or Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, drawing our attention all the way back to chapter six. And by that time, Philip is married, he has four daughters, and they are all prophesying within with the power of the Holy Spirit. So amazing, right? This, but all, yet also uncomfortable because we're traveling very slowly through the book of Acts. And as we're traveling and walking alongside the early church as they make all kinds of mistakes, left, right, and center, right? There's, we're watching that the Holy Spirit is still moving. And maybe a little bit dangerous, right? We're not at the point where it's a full-blown go out evangelize and the Gentiles get to come into the church as Gentiles. We're not there yet. We have several chapters before we get there. We're still in the early Jewish church kind of opening their doors and going, well, sort of, I'm very uncomfortable allowing you, Samaritan, you Ethiopian eunuch right into the middle, this feels uncomfortable our boundaries are being pushed just a little bit. 
But the Holy Spirit seems to be in the business of doing that. And so we're going to walk, at, walk with the church as the Holy Spirit continues to push them and push them and push them to question the boundaries and to question what makes people able to actually enter into God's kingdom. So will you pray with me? Father God, as we look at your scripture, as we look and peer back deep into history and look at your earliest followers and what you were doing among them, there is a challenge that is presented to us. It's a challenge to be as courageous as Philip, maybe one who um, is willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and whether we tend to see ourselves as the apostles who like to kind of keep it a little bit safe in um, known territory, or whether we are the Phillips who just pursue after the Holy Spirit. I just pray that as we enter into this next week as Resurrection Philadelphia, I just pray that you keep it on our hearts and our minds to be offering the prayers that say and ask that you give us the courage to look and to see where the Holy Spirit is moving and to call that space sacred and then to run to be in that space, even if it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable in the meantime. And in the name of the Father and the Son and in the Holy Spirit, we praise these things. Amen.